Welcome to episode 12 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Dr. David Farsi, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Miami Beach, and President-elect of AAEM, speaks with Dr. Tiffany Osborne, Professor of Emergency Medicine and Acute and Critical Care Surgery at Barnes Jewish Hospital. Today, Dr. Farsi and Dr. Osborne will discuss the definition of sepsis and the current CMS bundles for severe sepsis and septic shock. Good afternoon from warm, sunny Florida. I am Dr. Farsi, your host of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Critical Care Podcast. Before we start today, I would like to thank all of our listeners for making this podcast a quite popular podcast for the Academy. I'm pleased to announce that we had almost 61,000 download. So thank you very much. Keep on sending your comments and the topics you would like. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a dear friend and a regular on this podcast, Dr. Tiffany Osborne. Dr. Osborne is a full professor with a dual appointment in the Department of Surgery, Division of Emergency Medicine at Barnes Jewish Hospital, Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Osborne is an acclaimed speaker, an acclaimed author with multiple, multiple very important papers. Dr. Osborne has served with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign since its beginning and is the author of the latest guideline that was published in 2016 for the management of sepsis and septic shock, the author of the famous Promise Trial, and many, many, many more papers. It is a great honor to have you on our podcast today. Dr. Osborne, how are you doing? And thank you for being here. Hey, Dave. It's great to be here. One just point of clarification is I'm an author on those. I was not the first author on a couple of those papers that you listed off. So just as a point of clarification. Correct. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign is a coalition of many, many, many authors, but you're one of the authors. So Correct, yes. So that's what I wanted to get. So today, I think we have a very important podcast because we have CMS created the sepsis-based value purchase measure. And I think there's a lot of confusion among community hospitals, among teaching hospitals, on how do we deal and how do we meet the CMS definition, how do we meet the CMS bundles, but most important, how do we treat our patient the best? So this is why you know I wanted to chat with you today. And I think we should probably start this conversation with the definition. Yes. What a mess. So here's the thing. You know that recently you had the SEP3 definitions come out, and the SEP3 definitions were basically developed by a small group of intensivists who represented Society of Critical Care Medicine and European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and they came together with a majority agreement. I wouldn't necessarily say it was a consensus because if you look at the supplemental, you can see that there clearly was a lot of back and forth. But there was a majority agreement of how they wanted to define sepsis and septic shock. And then that was sent out 
to a number of different organizations, and several of those organizations signed off on it. However, several of those organizations did not. The American College of Emergency Physicians did not sign off on it. The Infectious Disease Society of America did not sign off on it. In fact, no North American... In fact, I think globally there was only one emergency medicine group that signed off on the definitions. There's been controversy. Uh, There's been a group of acceptance, and there's also been a group of controversy. So why did ASEP not sign off on the definitions? And the reason that ASEP did not sign off on the definitions had to do with two things predominantly. It was, there was a lot of discussion. There was a lot more details. But if you were to lay it out onto two specific things, what we would say is there were patient concerns clinical concerns that surrounded the fact of how lactate was not utilized and also surrounding QSOFA. So those were the two big areas of concern, which is why ASEP did not sign off on it. And just sorry to interrupt you, I just want to clarify for the residents and the community doctors out there, we're talking about the paper that was published called the Third International Consensus Definition for Sepsis and Septic Shock in parentheses, the sepsis-3 paper. Right. Let's just say what that is. Okay, so let's look first. What was our established definition? What's the definition that we're used to? The definition that we're used to is you have sepsis, which was said to be presumed or known infection, plus greater than or equal to two SERS criteria. And we remember that as being, of course, you know, whether or not they were hyper or hypothermic, they had a high respiratory rate, the white count was elevated or really low, or the respiratory rate was really elevated or the heart rate was really elevated. So it was greater than or equal to two SERS criteria with presumed or known infection. And we use that predominantly as our screening tool. We were using that terminology, sepsis, as a screening tool of who do we need to be concerned about and start watching. There are clearly a lot of people that would qualify as sepsis who would not qualify for aggressive management and who would not even qualify for admission. So I'm going to interrupt you for one second, and I just want to exemplify. So the reason sepsis... For a resident, the way I explain to our residents, sepsis is a time-sensitive disease. The longer we wait, the mortality drastically increase. The same way that if we're waiting for an ST segment elevation, those longer than 90 minutes before intervention, the mortality had a drastic increase. So the purpose of these early recognition was to try to catch those patients in an early state and start aggressive therapy to prevent them from deteriorating into that next category. One more example that I want the residents to understand. So sepsis is, again, like Dr. Osborne stated, it's infection with two of the service criteria. And the service criteria is temperature greater than 38 Celsius or less than 36, a heart rate greater than 90, respiration greater than 20, a WBC count greater than 12,000 or less than 4,000, or with 10% immature neutrophils, so a patient comes in with a pharyngitis with no source criteria, that patient has pharyngitis. That patient is not in sepsis. This is something I want to make sure people understand because a lot of the resident will come in and will get confused and say, well, I have a sepsis patient, but it's just really an infection with no SIR criteria. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair representation? 
Yeah, I think that's fair. And the other piece, too, is that SIRS is not perfect. So the definition, the established definition for sepsis is clearly by no means a perfect definition. And there's been a lot of controversy associated with that particular definition because it's assumed by many to be overly sensitive. You could have a cold and walk up the stairs and then qualify for sepsis, right? Because your heart rate's increased and your respiratory rate's increased. It's an imperfect assessment, but it was what we were using for a long period of time as our screening tool. Who do we need to sort of keep our eyes on? It doesn't necessarily mean that they need to be admitted to the hospital. It doesn't necessarily mean that they need aggressive therapy, but it's somebody that we're keeping our eyes on while we have them, if that makes sense. If you have a 30-year-old who comes in and they have pneumonia, their white count is elevated, their lactate is normal, their temperature is elevated, their respiratory rate is elevated, but their oxygen saturation is fine. You've given them some fluid, you start them on antibiotics, you've watched them for a little bit, and they're okay. You're going to send them home with antibiotics and follow up with their primary physician. If you have a 35-year-old who comes in with pneumonia who has a lactate of six and starts to become hypotensive, they're not going home. You know, it's a different patient. So Correct. Again, you know, trauma can cause SIRS, burns, pancreatitis. So SIRS is not just for infection. There's other causes. So, sorry, I interrupted you, but continuing with your definition. Right. So we're talking about the established definitions, one that's been used over time. And so we had defined sepsis, as we said, by known or presumed infection plus greater than or equal to two of these SIRS criteria. And then you had this category of severe sepsis, which was sepsis and end organ dysfunction or a lactate greater than two. Elevated lactate was considered to be a type of end organ dysfunction. So that was the second category. And then the third category was septic shock. And septic shock was defined as refractory, you know, sepsis plus refractory hypotension plus or minus lactate, meaning that you could be hypotensive and have a normal lactate and still be considered in shock. You could be hypotensive with an elevated lactate and still considered to be in shock. So that was sort of the established definitions. And then when sepsis three definitions came in, what they proposed, and remember, these are proposed, right? These are organizations that said, this is what we would like to do. It doesn't mean that anybody is required to do them. It's what they propose that we should consider. And maybe we should consider it. I'm just saying that there's no government mandate for us to accept a series of definitions that a couple of organizations came together and provided to us to consider. And actually, I would say, uh, we're talking with the Physician Advisory on CMS for Sepsis, they will say we must follow the established definition, not the Sepsis 3 definition. The Sepsis 3 definition says... They use SOFA criteria, and SOFA criteria has been a well-established sort of risk assessment tool in ICU patients and hospitalized patients for a number of years, and it's predominantly been used for research. The Q-SOFA that sepsis 3 is only three factors. is the respiratory rate greater than 22, augmentation, and systolic pressure less than 90. That's their Q-SOFA that they said we should be using instead of the SIRS if they have two of the Q-SOFA. And then they have the sequential organ failure assessment, 
which is a modified software score based on only one, two, three, four, five, six factors instead of all the other factors. And the greater their score is, the greater their mortality is. Yes. Yeah, so with the SOFA score, what they look at is different types of organ dysfunction. Yes, exactly from what you just said. So it has to do with pulmonary coagulation, hepatic circulatory. There's a number of different things that they use. And for circulatory, for example, if you had a blood pressure that was normal, that would be a zero for blood pressure. If you had a mean arterial pressure that was less than 70, which we might consider hypotensive, then that would give you a score of one. So if we just looked at it from the standpoint of, if you're looking at organ dysfunction, the SOFA score categorizes it into pulmonary dysfunction, coagulation dysfunction, hepatic dysfunction, circulatory, you know, mental status and renal dysfunction, and then you get a score. And the higher the score, the sicker the patient. But if you look at it, just as an example, if you look at the circulatory system, if the blood pressure is normal, then it would be a zero. If the blood pressure was low, then it would be a one. If you start dopamine or dobutamine, then it would be a two. It's all based on the vasopressors and increasing dose of the vasopressors. That makes sense. But just for the resident, just for me to clarify a little bit, as a screening tool, they talk to what's called a Q-SOFA score. And the Q-SOFA score is the respiratory rate greater than 22, alternation, and systolic blood pressure less than 100. That patient would fit in as the definition, according to them, as sepsis. So now there's a difference between the Q-SOFA and the SOFA. Q-SOFA, they were basically using as a screening tool for infected patients, although they don't like to use the terminology of screening tool. But, you know, looking back in the paper, that's the category that it was under. It was under a category that said screening. So that's their screening tool for infected patients. What we're talking about right now is what are the actual definitions once you've decided the patient is septic? Correct. So... CMS, we talked about what the, C, the CMS definitions is consistent with the established definitions that we're used to. Sepsis 3 is now saying for sepsis, we're going to have infection plus greater than or equal to two new SOFA criteria. Severe sepsis is no longer a category. Septic shock is vasopressors and a lactate greater than two, Okay. So that's what they're saying are the different areas for the sepsis-3 definition. So what that means, so if you think for a second about what does that mean, what that means is for the sepsis-3 definition, it's greater than or equal to two SOFA criteria with infected patients. It excludes lactate. So lactate is not part of that definition. And correct. Not only it's not part of their documentation, but if we actually dissect the paper, they only had less than 5% of their patient base who had lactate levels. That's correct. Now, one of those databases had around 50 to 60% of their patients with that had lactate values. But when you look at over a number of different studies that have high levels of using lactate for screening or monitoring, there was a very big difference in whether or not it was helpful. So if you look at the database, if you look at the, their table, 
if you put together the groups that have normal blood pressure and a lactate greater than or equal to four, that mortality was about 30%. It's like 29.9%. If you look at the categories, the groups in that table that have low blood pressure with normal lactate, that mortality is about 30%. It's like 29.7%. So the point here is that a normal blood pressure and a lactate that's greater than or equal to four has the same mortality as someone who's hypotensive and has a normal lactate, but yet persistent hypotension is part of the definitions. And elevated lactate it, with normotensive patients are not. And so the concern there is if the experts are saying lactate is only important when the patient's blood pressure drops when they become hypotensive, then why would you look for it before? This is important because that is an important group of patients, and we're talking about the patients who are normal tensive with a lactate greater than four, that are captured by the surviving sepsis campaign and not captured by the sepsis three campaign. I would agree with that. But back for this too, and we can then discuss the components of the lactate, but for the sepsis component, what they're calling sepsis, infection plus greater than or equal to two SOFA criteria, and lactate is not part of that equation. So that means two things. One, if you have a patient who is infected and has a lactate of eight, they might not be considered septic by this definition. If you had a patient who was hypotensive, let's say that their mean arterial pressure was 60, let's say you've got a blood pressure that's around 90, and they were oxygenating fine, they were not coagulopathic. They weren't in renal failure yet. You know, they might be early on and they, they didn't have mental status changes. Then that could mean that potentially at this point in time, they had one SOFA criteria, which would mean until you started vasopressors, they would not be considered septic. But once you start vasopressors, they are. So if you gave them fluid and they stabilized out, but they were still infected, they still had elevated lactate, then at that point in time, they wouldn't consider them to be septic. And for the interest of time, so I agree 100%. I just want the residents to understand. Some of the residents in my program has been early adopters, and I've told them this paper has not been validated. It's a very small sample size. Again, like Dr. Osborne stated, the key factors that I think its sensitivity is poor and has a potential of missing patient. And on top of this, we in the United States have to follow CMS. So we're going to stick for the rest of this podcast with the established definitions. Yeah. And to that point, when does lactate come into this? Lactate comes into this once the patient's hypotensive. So the way that septic shock is defined in the sepsis three definition is if they are infected on vasopressors and have a lactate greater than two. Okay, so what that means is that you can have a patient who's hypotensive and on vasopressors. You can even have two vasopressors. But if their lactate's not elevated, they're not considered to be in shock by the new definitions. Everybody across the country is confused because they look at this and they say, what the heck are we doing? Which one am I supposed to use? Which definition am I supposed to use? And it's very confusing. 
So my suggestion would be use the CMS definition, the established definition, until such time that it's been validated that the new definitions have been validated, tweaked, refined to a point that the government starts to say, okay, we believe that this is the right way to go, or the clinical community says, okay, that there's consensus with the clinical community that this is the way to go. But right now there is not complete consensus within the clinical community. So the other issue I think that's important is that, and whether you agree or disagree, the question that I'm answering is why did ASAP have an issue with it? And the reason that ASAP had an issue with it was because if you have an infected patient and you're saying, okay, I'm going to say that I'm screening when they're hypotensive or altered and or tachypnic. So, I mean, even if you just take out tachypnic, let's just say, okay, that'll be for everybody. And say infected patient who either has an altered mental status or is hypotensive. There is no question that that will be very specific for bad outcomes, right? I mean, basically, if a patient presents dying, they're more likely to end up dead, right? Correct. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So the question is not, does that accurately predict who's going to need an ICU admission and who has the higher likelihood to end up dead? That's not a question. I think we're all in agreement that that would have a high specificity. Yes, the question is, who are we missing if that's where we're starting? And as a historical marker, so Dr. Osborne and myself are both critical care trained. We both work in the ICU. And some of you may not understand really, historically, the SOFA score was a score to predict mortality and outcome of patient in the ICU. And in the first 24 to 48 hours, the higher their score, the higher the chance of mortality. So if they had a score of nine, their mortality back then was stated to be 33%. And if they had a score of 11, it was close to 95%. Now we made a jump from a predictor score to now a score to catch people. And again, I agree with Dr. Osborne. It's, I think this is way too early. I think we're using the wrong score. And I think the sensitivity has not been validated. And we're going well, to miss patients. I think there's some articles that are out now that have looked at it. And it all depends on... What are you trying to find? Dave, when you and I are working in the ICU, we have a limited number of beds, and we have to determine how we're going to spend those resources, those beds, right? So what we're looking at is who is most likely to have the worst outcome if they're not here. We're looking for high specificity. We're looking for proof to me that it is something that could be bad, and that's the person that we're going to bring into the ICU. But if we don't bring them into the unit and they decompensate, well, they're still in the hospital. When you're in the unit and you have a limited amount of resources, you're looking for high specificity. When you're in the emergency department, you're looking for high sensitivity. Correct. Right? Because 100%. if you miss them, they're not still in the hospital. They could end up home. home. Correct. Correct. Right? So it's all based on what are you looking for? Are you looking for the patients who are likely to die, or are you looking for the patients who are likely to decompensate? So that's where the disconnect is between these two groups, is that one is looking at it from the framework or the perspective of, I have limited resources, 
Who am I going to take into the ICU? And the other is looking from the perspective of, I don't want to miss somebody who ends up going home, getting sick and dying. I need to know who has the potential to decompensate. So in the ED, you're looking for, you know, as Don Yealy says, right? We're in the business of sensitivity. Correct. 100%. We'd rather be high sensitivity and be wrong than missing somebody. Right. I think we've kind of beat the dead horse. I think that's what your American says. That's the, <laughs> the correct American expression on the definition. Now, I'd like to kind of move forward and talk about the CMS bundles for severe sepsis and, and bundle for septic shock. Both the bundles are three hours and six hours. And I'm going to start with the first question and then we'll go and talk about each bundles. But the first question I have for you, which I think is the most confusing question and probably the most perplex is when is time zero start? That's a great question. So time zero is you have an infection, presumed or known infection. You have greater than or equal to two SERS criteria and some type of end organ dysfunction, whether it's a specific organ like renal failure or it's new hypotension or it's elevated lactate, that's when time zero commences. Just to clarify, if there is no clinical suspicion of sepsis, regardless of the SERS and organ dysfunction value, the case would not be included in the numerator according to CMS. The clinician can affirmatively explain the SIRS and or organ dysfunction by simply stating they do not suspect this is a sepsis case. So in the initial bundles for severe sepsis, CMS is requiring that within time zero, so we've recognized a patient as now severe sepsis, we need to make sure we measure lactate, obtain blood cultures prior to antibiotic, administer antibiotic. And then six hours, we're going to have to repeat a serum lactate if lactate is greater than two. So now here's my question, because in the bundle of severe sepsis, one of the bundle is measure serum lactates within three hours of presentation. So now the patient has two of the search criteria, and then you have to measure a lactate. What do you think about lactates as point of care at triage? Yeah, that's what we do in general is we do lactate as a point of care at triage. So again, in a non-academic centers, and a lot of our listeners are community doctors. I was at a conference in Orlando with about 50 to 60 medical directors. And when I ask how many people were doing lactate at triage, I can tell you there's only probably a dozen hands. So not everywhere is doing triage. And there's a paper, an old paper from 2010, if you want to look at it, from Dr. Treziak that compared, you know, triage lactate versus sending a lactate to the laboratory. And the mean time difference was 151 minutes, meaning that it took 151 minutes from the time they drew the blood to the time they resulted compared to having a triage. So you saved 151 minutes. In my book, CCC's do, sorry, I'm counting in French, but over two hours, unless you have a specific pathway in your lab that you can guarantee your lactate will return and you do lactate on every single patient. I do want to take the flip side of the coin on this lactate issue. 
And the problem with early lactate screen is the same as SIRS, vital sign triggering a sepsis workup. It does not include the clinician opinion or the clinician decision making. So some of the EMR, for example, my EPIC, we created a BPH, a bullet point advisory, that if the patient has two or more of the SIRS criteria, it triggers an alert. And that's unnecessary workup if the physician does not believe that it is secondary due to sepsis. And again, they would need to state that they think this is not sepsis. I think that it is a benefit, clearly. And so it, it really depends on your institution. We used to send off whole blood lactates because the lab told us that they could turn it around in uh, 20 minutes. And they could, they could turn around 20 minutes. The problem was that the amount of time it took to get to the lab and then wait in the queue, it takes more than just the amount of time where they have it on the table for us. We have to, it's the whole process. What's the time of the whole process? And that can be, that can be problematic. I would agree with you. So to emphasize the CMS three-hour severe sepsis and the six-hour severe sepsis bundle, you need to do blood cultures. You need to initiate lactate measurement. You need to initiate antibiotic That's for severe sepsis during your first three hours. Your six-hour bundle for severe sepsis is you need to check the lactate and then repeat the lactate. The bundle for septic shock, the initial three hours. Now, of course, we've done the collected and checked the lactate. We did the blood culture. We've initiated antibiotic. But for the septic shock bundle, you're going to have to meet the 30 cc per kg in the initial three hour. And then at six hour, if the patient needs to either get vasopressor and needs a repeat assessment. So right now we're talking CMS bundle. We're not talking clinical. So in CMS, there are actually two levels of this. If you have someone who's become hypotensive at any point in time, then even if it's transient hypotension, even if it's one reading, then they are supposed to get 30 cc per kilogram. If they've presented hypotensive, as I've read it, it's 30 cc per kilogram, which includes what might have been given prior to determining that the hypotension was persistent. So as I read it, on May 16th at 4.40 p.m., (laughs) because at 4.45, it could change, right? But as I understand it right now, today, it includes, that 30 cc per kilogram includes whatever was given prior within the emergency department, prior to you determining that it was persistent or it was resistant hypertension. So it's the entire amount of fluid during that period of time. Correct. So 100% correct. So for CMS core measure, that include the pre-hospital fluid. Pre-hospital is our, they're part of the healthcare team, so it's important that we communicate and that we get information. But so whatever mm-hmm. they receive from pre-hospital also to the time, correct. Because the 30 cc's is just a basic requirement. It's not an end for all. You can give a lot more fluid over that if you think that the patient is fluid depleted and needs more fluid. Sure, it's a minimum. Um, I'd like to touch a subject that I think is very, very important. So we're going to continue. This is, we're talking about a septic shock patient. So we're talking about a patient who's, forget about the age, has a 
lactic of six, patient is hypotensive, febrile, has white count of 18,000, has bilateral infiltrate on his chest x-ray, and history of EF of 10% and on dialysis. Let's make it worse. Now, it's the recommendation is intubate the patient and still give the 30 cc's per kg to the patients. I know there's a lot of physician out there that doesn't feel comfortable and they say, you know, I disagree with this. I'm just going to write patient as a potential of a risk of respiratory deterioration or end-stage renal dialysis, and they will not give the fluid. And I think the fluid is crucial because septic shock is a vasodilatory disease and we need to fill the tank. What's your thought on that? So, in general, if you think the patient is volume depleted, then they require volume. A vasopressor is not helpful if there's nothing intravascularly to press. So they need that. Now, having said that, pretty much every patient population, I think if they need volume, you have to give them volume. And that comes with your clinical assessment, whether or not you've done a passive leg raise, whatever it is that ultrasound, whatever it is that you're using to determine that the patient is intravascularly dry. If you feel like they are hypovolemic, then nothing's going to fix that except volume. If they have diastolic dysfunction, right ventricular dysfunction, you may need to support the heart while you are giving them volume. But in general, if you think that the patient is hypovolemic, then you have to give them volume to fix the problem. So let's say you think that the patient is an end-stage renal disease or a CHF patient and with a low EF in septic shock. And let's say that you clinically believe he's not volume depleted. How do we meet the CMS guideline? We have to give 30 cc's. I mean, the CMS is all or none. So mm -hmm. it's, not, yeah. it's not an exception. You're gonna have to give that 30 cc's to that patient. So I hear your point. If I have done some type of intravascular measurement combined with my clinical assessment, and I feel the patient is not hypovolemic, and in fact think that giving fluid might be hurtful, then I'm not gonna give the fluid. And will I fail the measure? Yeah, I'll fail the measure. And I have to be okay with that if I think it could be clinically harmful. Now having said that, most of the time for emergency department presentations or for acute decompensation, it's highly unlikely that hypovolemia is not a component of that. If I have, if the patient, say, was transferred in, if the patient's already been resuscitated, if I have looked at the heart and I'm seeing that the heart is not beating well, I mean, I'm going to support the heart. If I've done an assessment and I feel like the patient is hypervolemic, which I can't imagine that in a septic shock patient, but if that were the case, then... I'm going to do what I think is clinically right for the patient. Most of the time, what's clinically right for the patient will be to give volume. But if in your assessment you found that volume is no longer required, that you have met their intravascular volume requirements, then that is what it is. So like every good emergency physician, once we do something to the patient, we really need to be checking and reassessing. So CMS does make us do a reassessment and the reassessment is really a, a, an attestation that you've 
gone, re-examine the patient. And that exam needs to be done within six hours. Basically, we can just state that a that you perform a physical exam, perfusion assessment, or sepsis focus exam was was done. So the doctor choose how they reassess the patient, but must have a bedside exam as part of the reassessment and a blanket statement attestating to that reassessment will count for the six hour reassessment. What they're looking at from the last NQF iteration was that now the physician can attest to was an exam done? Yes, I, I did an exam without having to document every single component of the exam. But they do want to make sure that the physician has gone back to the bedside and reassessed the patient. I think that's the predominant piece of it. And if you think about this, right, if you're looking at the CMS bundle, you have a three-hour bundle. What's the three-hour bundle? It's early recognition, early IV fluids, early lactate measurement early blood cultures and early antibiotics and repeating your lactate if it's elevated. So in process, promise, and arise, before you could ever even get into the study, what was required prior to randomization? Antibiotics. Yeah, early identification, (laughs) early lactate measurement, early blood cultures, and antibiotics. In fact, in both promise and arise, antibiotics had to be initiated prior to even being randomized. And in process, it wasn't a requirement that 70% of the patients or 75%, right around that percentage, did have antibiotics initiated prior to being randomized. So for the three-hour component of the CMS measure, it actually fits with the data. Now, when you look at the second part, when it had all of those various things in it, and especially with SCBO2 and CBP, which are no longer advised for all patients, So a lot of the components that were in the previous iteration of this CMS bundle for the six-hour component, that piece has been simplified, I think. So as I understand it today, at 16 May, almost 5 p.m., it's been simplified, so it requires physician attestation that it's been done, but you don't have to document each one of those individual elements how that evolves still, you know, we wait to see what happens. But the point being that the other piece, if we take that bit out, the other piece, which is if they're still hypotensive, start them on vasopressors and then make sure that you've reassessed volume status somehow, whether it's clinically or with a passive leg raise or whatever you do. But I mean, they want the physician to go back to the bedside. I think after taking out all of those individual elements that were so cumbersome, I think that the bundle makes more sense at this point. If that's what ultimately ends up happening, I think it makes more sense if they've taken out that piece. So as of today, CMS is only requiring us to do a reassessment. At the Greater New York Hospital Association meeting on April 28, 2017, Dr. Tefera, one of the senior advisory for CMS, stated in his lecture that CMS now only requires that we document a focus exam, that the focus exam was repeated. And like we've been saying all along, this makes sense, right? Once we do an intervention, we need to reassess the patient. 
and we need to document that we did this reassessment. Example of acceptable reassessment is sepsis reperfusion assessment was performed, or you can state after the initial 30 cc per kg fluid bolus reassessment of the patient was performed. You should be reassessing your patient. You should recheck your lactate. I mean, you're not doing things that's going out of your way. You're doing things to actually improve the patient. And it makes sense to recheck the patient, re-examine, and if it doesn't change, then you need to do something else. Increase the pressors. Is he perfusing? So, Dr. Osborne, what do you think of this recent bandwagon of the Merrick paper of adding vitamin C, thymine, and corticosteroids to severe septic and septic shock. All right, so with vitamin C, it's a free radical scavenger, right? Sort of like methylene blues, a free radical scavenger. And could vitamin C help? I don't know. I think that what we have right now is a hypothesis generating evaluation and that it needs to be sorted out a little bit more. But here's what I would put forward. The issue with vitamin C is a lot of people feel, hey, vitamin C, thiamine, it falls into a won't hurt, might help category. However, there's a component that you might want to reconsider. So when you use high dose intravenous vitamin C, it can actually interfere with your point of care glucose readings, meaning those readings may be falsely elevated. Why? Vitamin C is an antioxidant and the point of care glucometer uses an oxidative process to read the glucose. So if you have an antioxidant, a process that uses an oxidative process will be interfered with. So what has happened is you get severe hypoglycemia, but your point of care glucose readings are normal. They're falsely elevated. The effects of intravenous vitamin C on fingerstick blood glucose, especially in critically ill patients, it hasn't been rigorously studied. So there is a caution. You know, so caution is advised, basically, interpreting glucose monitoring using point of care if you are administering IV vitamin C. Correct. I'm definitely not what's called an early adopter, meaning you know, I'm not doing this because I actually believe this is wrong. So you mentioned the point of uh, glucose, but if we look back in the literature, and generally in medicine, we forget when we do PubMed search or anything, we only look for the last 10 years. But vitamin C has been around for a long time, especially in cancer patients. And there's some very well-written papers that shows that vitamin C versus you know, placebo in cancer patients did not do anything. But worse, it showed that it can induce in certain patients worsening renal failure. It can induce myocardic arrhythmias. Even though we think it's not toxic, but there is potential risk. And what about thymine? Thymine by itself can cause toxicity. So I think it's too early, and we would need a much larger larger sample, I think a small patient-based population. And I don't know, I think we need a lot larger sample. What do you think? I would not recommend that we should be doing this at this moment in time. Yeah, this it's hypothesis generating, but the idea that it falls into a won't hurt, might help category may actually be incorrect. So as you've said, you would probably be prudent to exercise caution right now until we know more information. So I think we're about the end of this podcast. So in summary, 
we've talked about the definitions and the sepsis 3 definition has not been validated so we're not as of now we're not going to use it we're going to follow the severe sepsis and septic shock cms bundles which makes sense we recommend lactate as a point of care at triage and re-examining our patients and doing the right thing giving them fluid giving them the antibiotics i keep on saying it's a time sensitive disease but Dr. River paper in 2001, mortality in America for sepsis was approximately 48%. And today we're quoting a mortality by of 26 to 28%. So we're talking an absolute reduction of 20%, which is drastic. And I think the more and more we're paying attention, the more and more we're recognizing this patient, the more and more will decrease mortality. So Tiffany, on this note, if you have anything else you want to say, I just want to say thank you so much for the time and the effort you spent for this podcast. Now, thanks for talking with me, Dave. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out AAEM Connect, where you can engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Find all episodes of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine and other podcast series on the AAEM website underneath the Publications tab. Join us again next episode as Dr. Farsi will discuss another topic of importance for emergency physicians.